0: Lesson 7. God's Great Kingdom Plan Through Jesus How to Live Forever Master Texts, I quote. All Scripture, as to say the Bible, is breathed out by God and is useful for teaching, reproof, correction and training in righteousness. 2 Timothy 3 verse 16. How blessed are the meek! They're going to have the earth as their inheritance. That's Matthew 5 verse 5. Anyone who goes too far and does not remain in the teaching of the Messiah has no relation with the Father, and the one who remains in that teaching has a relationship with both the Father and the Son. That's 2 John verse 9. Wisdom speaks as follows, I will pour out my spirit upon you, I will make my words known to you. That's Proverbs 1, verse 23. Another quotation, Not everyone who says to me, that's to Jesus, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom, but only those who do the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that future day, Lord, Lord, we preached in your name, didn't we? We did many amazing miracles in your name, didn't we? We cast out demons in your name, didn't we? Then I will declare to them Depart from me, you who work iniquity. I never recognized you. At Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 to 23. Another quotation The power of the Spirit will come over you, Mary in this case. And for that reason precisely, the one to be begotten, that is, brought into existence, will be called the Son of God. Luke 1, verse 35. The Gospel is the all-important message of the Bible. Its design is to inform us human beings about what God is planning for us and the world. It reveals to us the purpose of existence. It presents us with an amazing destiny. It was delivered to us by God's miraculously begotten Son, who, as he said, and I quote, came to preach the gospel of the kingdom. That is the reason why God commissioned me. Luke 4, verse 43, and Mark 1, verse 38. Paul and the other apostles taught the same kingdom gospel as Jesus had. They were obediently following Jesus by promoting the gospel as Jesus had preached it. There is thus one gospel for everyone, of every nation. Jesus had given his marching orders for the church until he comes back. In Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 and 20, he commanded that the same gospel of the kingdom as he had preached be announced to all the nations. Jesus also commanded that converts be discipled in the teachings of the Christian faith and that they be baptized in water. Water baptism is not a, quote, optional extra. It remains, as it always was, a direct command of Jesus until the end of the age. Jesus warned that saying Lord to him is inadequate if we are not willing to do what he says. I quote, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and you will not do what I say? That's in Luke chapter 6, verse 46. It's an empty pretense to claim Christ as Master and then to oppose his simple basic teachings, such as belief in the gospel of the kingdom, water baptism, and, of course, a persistent Christian lifestyle until the end. The Christian world is now fragmented into thousands of differing groups. Something has happened to confuse the united faith of the New Testament writers. Among these were people who had known Jesus personally, spent hours with him, and listened day after day to his teachings. They well knew his amazing aims and claims. In addition, they knew that three days after being killed by crucifixion, he reappeared alive and immortal. They, and I quote, ate and drank with him after he came back from death. as in Acts 10, verse 41. The testimony of Jesus' apostles and his followers to his resurrection deserves our full confidence. There's every reason to believe them. They saw Jesus die, and I quote, and all his acquaintances and the women who accompanied him from Galilee were standing at a distance seeing these things. Luke 23, verse 49. They knew that he'd been cruelly executed. The women saw him buried, and the apostles and others saw him alive again. They had no reason at all to lie, nor were they hallucinating. They simply knew what had happened, and they were naturally compelled to share the glorious hope of immortality through following and obeying Jesus with us all. Some absurd objections have been raised against the apostles. No one saw Jesus leave the tomb, it is said. Therefore the resurrection is only a guess. If you saw someone at home and healthy, who you knew had been in the hospital, would you immediately doubt that he had left the hospital because no one saw him leave? God does not expect us to guess or just, quote, have blind faith. Faith is believing, and believing is based on solid evidence, the evidence of credible witnesses. Anyone who knows the New Testament documents well, works with the original languages, perhaps, or reads the Bible in many versions, knows that these are not fraudulent writings. Their authors would have gained nothing by lying, and they were not insane. Insane people cannot produce writings of the supremely high quality of the New Testament. The apostles risked life and limb, and the furious opposition of some Jews and Gentiles as they made the good news of the kingdom known in the Roman Empire. Some of them died for the message they preached so tirelessly. To imagine they died for what they knew to be untrue is absurd. These men were honest and courageous. They were eyewitnesses of the events of Jesus' life, death and resurrection. It's the greatest presumption and arrogance for anyone, 2,000 years later, to say he or she knows better. You were not there, but they were. Jesus and the quest for immortality in the kingdom. Jesus' aim was to show the public how to live forever, how to have indestructible life, how to be beyond the power of death, how to have perfect health, For all eternity, Jesus offered the secret of immortality by inviting men and women everywhere to believe what he taught. He himself claimed to be the one and only perfect agent and Son of God. Jesus was uniquely the Son of God as a direct result of the miracle of a new creation by which God his Father, the God of Israel and of the Bible, brought him. Into existence. Jesus taught the gospel of the kingdom as the key to immortality. He taught the great good news about the kingdom for years before adding to the message the facts about his impending death and resurrection. The kingdom gospel, including the death and resurrection of the Savior, contains the conditions of the new covenant. Just as Moses had given the people of Israel the terms and stipulations of the Old Covenant in Exodus chapter 24 and had then poured blood over the people as well as the book containing the words of the covenant, so Jesus, as the final prophet, Deuteronomy 18, verses 15 to 18, Acts 3, verse 22, and Acts 7, verse 37, he did the same. He first gave all the words of the New Covenant in five blocks of teaching in Matthew and in Mark, Luke, and John's reports. Then Jesus announced his death. Blood is necessary for the inauguration of God's principal covenants in the Bible. Jesus then gave his own precious blood to inaugurate officially the New Covenant based not only on his death, but on the tremendously important words of the covenant, his own teachings. At the Last Supper held with his apostles, the night before he went to his torturous death on the cross, Jesus spoke of his future reunion with the apostles and, of course, all his subsequent brothers and sisters in the faith. He discussed the coming kingdom with them, by promising them a thoroughly political future with him in the kingdom, which would come to power worldwide at his return. Luke chapter 22, verses 29 to 30 contains a magnificent encapsulation of the new covenant. I quote, Just as my father has covenanted with me to give me a kingdom, so I now covenant with you to give you the kingdom. You will be promoted to sit on twelve thrones to administer the regathered tribes of Israel. This is a summary of the kingdom gospel. It was Jesus' final promise to his disciples. The promise of a place in the future kingdom was a privilege and a challenge. Jesus knew that as Messiah, he was going to solve the international and personal problems of the world, And he invited his followers to take part with him in this venture like him his followers were to become servant administrators in the kingdom they were to endure various trials in the present chaotic age satan is said to be the god of the present nations second corinthians 4 verse 4 then after maintaining their faith steadily until the end of their lives or until christ comes they would be brought back to life, given immortality and the joy of sharing in the worldwide kingdom government with its headquarters in a renewed Jerusalem. This plan gave and gives the greatest possible meaning to life now, and it enables those involved in it to endure suffering and setbacks, knowing that God, and I quote, works together in all things, for those who are called according to his purpose. Romans 8, verse 28. The loss of the identity of Jesus. Fragmentation in the church and the loss of the simple immortality program of God through Jesus is due to a huge shift away from the teachings of Jesus, which started soon after the death of the apostles. The teaching of Jesus and his apostles was gradually corrupted under the influence of Greek pagan philosophy, which interfered with the basic tenets of the Bible. The God of both testaments is the one God of Israel. The Creed of Israel requires belief in one person who is, and I quote, the only true God, John 17, verse 3. This creed was designed to be a shield, against any departure from the knowledge of the true God, Jesus himself, in a final memorable prayer in the presence of his disciples, spoke of the essence of the immortality program as believing in the Father as, quote, the only one who is truly God, and in himself, Jesus, as the Messiah, whom that one God commissioned. See John Chapter 17, verse 3. There's nothing complex about that creed. Had it remained intact, the history of the church would have been quite different. However, the Gentile mind of some early converts after the death of the apostles eventually misunderstood the fact that the Son of God, Jesus, began to exist when God generated him in Mary that's in Luke chapter 1, verse 35, based on a pagan view of the cosmos, these Gentiles finally contradicted the creed of Israel, which Jesus had confirmed as the Christian creed and the most important of all beliefs, as in Mark chapter 12, verses 28 to 34. These wrongly instructed converts gave to jesus no doubt in the name of quote, progress a prehistory which made him essentially non-human from the second century the loss of jesus the human being the son of god began jesus was eventually turned into the creator of the genesis creation he thus displaced his own father who had constantly insisted in the Old Testament scriptures that he alone and unaccompanied was the actual creator of all things. That's in Isaiah chapter 44, verse 24. The first stage in the loss of the true identity of Jesus made him a created person, but created before Genesis. This drastic shift was enough to deprive Jesus of his actual status as a real human being, beginning in the womb of his mother, as all humans do. The promised Messiah is the son of David, not a prehistoric person arriving from heaven. Confusion over the Messiah Jesus and his identity was compounded by a subsequent revision by so-called church fathers of the fourth century. It was then claimed that the Son of God was, in fact, An uncreated second member of the eternal Godhead. With this new twist, the Unitarian Creed of Israel and of Jesus, Mark chapter 12 verses 28 to 34, was again threatened and perverted. It was necessary now to explain the inexplicable, how the one God could really be both father and son, how two and later three, when the Holy Spirit was wrongly defined as a third person, could really be one. I note that Tertullian, as well as Arius later, said that there was a time when the sun did not exist. That was in his work called Ad Hermogenes, chapter 3, and he can hardly count as a Trinitarian. Origen introduced the idea of the, quote, eternal begetting of the sun. But thought of the Son as subordinate to the Father. The history of this whole unfortunate development is very well analyzed and criticized in the book by Karl-Heinz Ohlich, the title of which is One or Three, From the Father of Jesus to the Trinity. See also our The Doctrine of the Trinity, Christianity's Self-Inflicted Wound. Using terminology borrowed from the world of pagan philosophy, it was then held and enforced by a series of church councils that the Son of God had no beginning, that he was really God, and that he took on, quote, impersonal human nature in the womb of his mother. At this point, the Son was deprived of his human status. He was turned into God. Though lip service was paid to the messianic son of God, there was really no biological son of David who came into existence in Mary. That lineal descendant of David, the promised Messiah, was replaced by an eternally existing son of God, second member of a triune God. Mary, under this new scheme, bore, quote, human nature, which is vastly different from the son of David. To counteract the very obvious objection that the church now believed in two, who were both, quote, eternal God, the church declared that God is one in essence, no longer, as the creed of the Bible had taught, one in person. This abandonment of the Jewish Christian Unitarian Creed of Jesus led to untold confusion over terminology and resulted, after centuries of dispute, in an inscrutable, quote, mystery known as the doctrine of the Trinity. This new dogma, unknown to Jesus and the New Testament, and yet proclaimed in Jesus' name, was enforced on pain of excommunication. It has remained the hallmark of what is supposed to be genuine or, quote, orthodox Christianity. However, as many scholars know, it is highly improbable that Jesus would have recognized the Trinity as a creed faithful to the words of God in Scripture. An effective propaganda campaign has convinced unsuspecting Church members that only those who are prepared to believe in the post-biblical revised creed, the Trinity, and that Jesus is fully God and fully man can be accepted as Christian. Unfortunately, not only is this creed then forced into the Bible, sometimes even by mistranslation in some versions, for example, the NIV mistranslates John sixteen twenty-eight, and chapter 20, verse 17, to give the impression that Jesus went back to the Father. And Philippians 2, 6, to say that Jesus is God, i.e. being in very nature God. when Paul wrote that Messiah Jesus, quote, was in the form of God, which is a very different thing. The Bible itself becomes very difficult to read intelligently with these new theories, since Jesus and the apostles did not believe in the Trinity. Jesus never claimed to be God. He always expressed his subordination to God, his creator and father he did of course claim a unique status which god had conferred on him and he constantly expressed his complete dependence on the one god his father for everything that he was able to achieve in pursuit of the will of god it has been satan's aim to oppose the will of god by denigrating the dignity of the human beings whom god has created satan mounts his opposition to the potential of man in the service of god the falsehood has been promulgated that jesus as son of god is quote too good to be a human being his miracles his extraordinary life and teaching are far beyond what any quote mere human person can achieve god's appointed human and sinless savior has been judged insufficient to achieve our salvation. Jesus, in view of what he did and said, therefore, must be God. This argument makes an appeal to the religious imagination, no doubt, but it does not represent biblical teaching. The Bible is a Unitarian document from cover to cover. It celebrates the fact that, quote, salvation is from the Jews. John 4, verse 22, and the Jews, as everyone ought to know, believed that God was a single, undivided, divine person. Jews were urged for their whole history under God never to depart from this cardinal belief that God is one, not two, or three. The God of the Jews is also the God of the Gentiles. Paul stated this fact clearly in Romans 3, verses 29 to 30. Not once did he ever hint at a revision of the biblical creed. The doctrine of the Trinity also antagonizes a billion Muslims who have likewise been schooled for centuries never to depart from belief in God as a single divine person. Both Jews and Muslims can correctly appeal to the Hebrew Bible, which, with its thousands of singular personal pronouns describing God, informs us all that God is a single person, a divine person, of course. To make this claim is simply to assert that one of the most fundamental laws of communication, that single personal pronouns describe single persons, applies to the Bible as to all literature. The post-biblical departure from the fundamental framework of the Bible, which recognizes Jesus as the human Messiah and God as one person, was a disaster for the original Christian faith. With that early loss of Jesus' identity as the Jewish Messiah of biblical prediction, went also the loss of the Kingdom of God gospel. Again, under the influence of pagan philosophy, the goal of the Christians was shifted. A fundamental falsehood overcame the basic biblical truth that man is born a mortal being subject to inevitable death. The falsehood was introduced from Platonic philosophy that man is innately immortal. This false teaching about the nature of us humans confused Jesus' teaching about immortality. While the church took on the pagan notion of inherent immortality, Jesus labored to instruct the public on how to achieve immortality, the immortality which none of us has by nature. Jesus' whole point, repeated constantly, was that we must, quote, be born again in order to achieve immortality in the future kingdom of God on earth. Rebirth is achieved, Jesus taught everywhere, by our intelligent reception of his kingdom gospel message. In the parable of the sower, Jesus pictured himself as sowing the essential seed of immortality, the secret of life forever. Jesus was active in the fulfillment Of the command originally given to man to quote be fruitful and multiply by sowing the seed of immortality he produced others as spiritual brothers and sisters he expected those who had received the secret of immortality to share it with others and thus continue the process of multiplication the seed gospel of the kingdom would be the instrument Of multitudes of candidates for immortality Paul referred to the Christians union with Christ it is for the purpose of bearing fruit Romans 7 verse 4 which surely must include the quote reproduction of other believers as heirs to the kingdom the gospel of the kingdom is defined as the quote word or message of God And it is also described as, quote, the seed. When that seed message of the kingdom of God is planted in the hearts of receptive hearers and acted upon, the germ of life forever is placed within the believer. His eyes are opened by the divine program contained in the teaching of Jesus. He becomes aware of his destiny as a candidate for life in the future kingdom. The spirit of God and of Jesus is transmitted by that seed message. It is the spirit, mind, and character of God, and it transmits a down payment of the immortality which the Christian will gain fully in the resurrection when Jesus comes back. The New Testament teaches that belief in Jesus and the kingdom must be maintained until the end. There's no such doctrine as, quote, once saved, always saved. Salvation is a process beginning now and continuing to the end. Salvation, Paul said, and I quote, is now nearer to us than when we first believed. That's in Romans 13, verse 11. He warned converted Christians that if they did not remain in the faith, they would be cut off. Romans 11, verse 22. Some believe for a while, Jesus had warned, in Luke 8, verse 13, but only those who persist to the end will be saved. Matthew 24, verse 13. A number of traps await the young believer in our present confused religious world. Firstly, the threat of confusing the terms of the new covenant taught by Jesus with the old covenant law of Moses. Paul did not require his converts to observe Saturday as the Sabbath, nor the feasts of the Hebrew calendar, nor the new moons. A major thrust of Paul's teaching was that the dividing war, which had separated Jew from Gentile, was abolished in Christ. That's in Ephesians 2 verse 15. Food laws given to Israel in Leviticus 11 are no longer valid. Romans 14, verses 14 to 20, where Paul uses the very opposite word from that found in Leviticus 11, as to say, clean, as opposed to unclean. As a Jew and Christian, Paul was convinced that, and I quote, all things are clean nothing he said is unclean of itself unless you think it is paul could hardly with these words have been upholding the kosher laws of leviticus 11. sunday is not a new sabbath day but it is entirely appropriate for christians to meet on that day in celebration of the resurrection acts 20 verse 7 speaks of just such a meeting of believers on quote the first day of the week to avoid collections when Paul visited church members were asked to lay up money every Sunday first Corinthians 16 verse 2 Jews in the synagogue met on the Sabbath and Paul attended such gatherings for the purpose of evangelizing synagogue meetings were not Christian gatherings of course The synagogue as a whole did not accept Jesus as the Messiah. Much good literature has been written on the contrast between the two covenants. The thrust of Paul's ministry was to facilitate fellowship between Jewish and Gentile Christians. Our book, The Law, the Sabbath, and New Covenant Christianity, describes our own journey from legalism to freedom, and presents the case for this from Scripture. The New Testament Scriptures have been given to us in the Greek language. Arguments about an original Aramaic version can divert us from the important business of understanding Scripture as we have it in Greek. We have no original texts or autographs, but a large number of copies in Greek, where corruptions have occurred, the evidence usually remains. Arguments about the use of the divine name Yahweh or how it was pronounced are not useful. The exact pronunciation is not known, and the New Testament makes no special point about the importance of pronouncing God's name in Hebrew or the name of Jesus in Hebrew. Inspired Greek manuscripts show that names may be legitimately translated or transliterated into other languages. Another pressing danger for the new convert is pressure to, quote, speak in tongues. In fact, the miracle of so-called tongues, which means languages, not a series of meaningless syllables, involved a supernatural ability by the apostles and those with them to speak languages they had never learned. The miracle was one of speaking, certainly not a miracle of hearing in the minds of the yet unconverted. It was the apostles who spoke miraculously to the crowd, who recognized their own various dialects being spoken by those who had never learned them. The miracle was a demonstrable evidence that God was at work, and it identified the apostles as the accredited agents of Jesus. The so-called tongues was certainly not a practical miracle to overcome the language barriers. When Peter preached to the same crowd in Acts chapter 2, he spoke in Aramaic or Greek and was understood by all. The language gift in 1 Corinthians 12 to 14 is listed as the least important, and it was positively never intended for every believer, I quote, do all speak in tongues? Paul asked, by no means. See 1 Corinthians 12 verse 30. Attempts to produce these gifts today are scarcely convincing. They are not recognized consistently and reliably as real languages. Tongue speakers often do not know what they're saying. By contrast, under Paul's supervision, The gifts were unambiguous. Tongues, so-called, should be verified as real languages as they clearly were in Acts chapter 2. And the one who claims the ability to speak in tongues is exhorted to translate the language or tongue so that all may be benefited. 1 Corinthians 14, verse 13. There's no such thing in 1 Corinthians 12-14, as a tongue, which is supposed to remain always in private. Thousands of tape recordings of tongues today do not produce evidence of real languages being spoken supernaturally. Rather, many have been convinced to imitate the practice of others, and pagan religions have evidence of, quote, tongues, showing that its source is not necessarily from God. In 1 Corinthians 13, verses 8 to 12, Paul made no certain statement about whether those particular gifts would continue for the whole period until Jesus returns. He did observe that the supernatural utterances in tongues and prophecies of his own time provided knowledge which would be superseded at the return of Jesus. He did not say, That the utterances and prophecies themselves would continue to be given beyond the close of the canon of scripture certainly the knowledge revealed in prophecy and tongues translated is a form of prophecy first corinthians 14 verse 5 this was supernaturally given and paul concluded that quote tongues are a sign that's to say a demonstrable miracle for unbelievers, 1 Corinthians 14, verse 22. There are no apostles among us today at the level of Peter or the Twelve or Paul. There's nothing in the New Testament about ordaining any successors to the apostles. Apostles are those who had personally seen the risen Jesus and Paul claimed his apostleship on the basis of his ability to do, quote, signs and wonders which belong to an apostle. 2 Corinthians 12, verse 12, and Romans 15, verse 19, and of having seen Jesus personally. 1 Corinthians 9, verse 1. The apostles were the foundation of the New Testament church, appointed by Jesus, and the foundation cannot be relayed. We should, of course, all be disciples of the apostles who faithfully represented the faith as taught by Jesus. None of this means that God does not intervene as he desires. His presence with the believer to guide and instruct is promised until the coming of Jesus. I quote, God works in all things for good to those who love him. See Romans 8, verse 28. A further trap awaits the New Believer. It is the theory that there are no supernatural or evil personalities in Scripture, that Satan or the devil is simply a metaphor for the evil which resides in human nature. The New Testament, however, speaks with complete clarity of the demons as non-human, supernatural, intelligent beings. Jesus spoke to the demons and they spoke to him. They are always distinct from the unfortunate human persons whom they influence. To deny the existence of Satan as a fallen and supernatural being is to erase a whole dimension of reality from the sacred text. It amounts to a refusal to believe in a major element of divine revelation in the Bible. The word, quote, demon has a perfectly clear basic meaning in Greek and we may not rewrite the lexicons and dictionaries to support our own theories. If the New Testament writers did not believe in the existence of demons, the one thing they could never have done was to lace their accounts with the words and activities of demons or evil spirits. There are perfectly good words in Greek To describe madness and disease, but the writers report for our instruction that demons are intelligent, evil, supernatural personalities working for the devil, who is equally a personal being. Jesus recognized their existence, and so should his followers. Not to do so would be a form of unbelief. Explaining away supernatural evil challenges the authenticity of the Biblical text and forces its exponents to impose a theory on the Bible which implies that Jesus was an ignorant victim of unscientific age. The existence of demons as demons has been obvious to millions of readers of the sacred text. Perhaps most problematic for a clear understanding of the Bible is any theory of the kingdom of God which defines it against the evidence of the New Testament. If the kingdom is misunderstood, so automatically is the gospel, which is the gospel about the kingdom. One large denomination, the Church of Christ, equates the kingdom with the church and creates a very large confusion over the gospel. They propose even that the Lord's Prayer may your kingdom come, is no longer valid for us. Since the kingdom arrived, they say, at Pentecost, when Jesus was seated with God in heaven. The confusion of the church with the kingdom obscures the future kingdom of God as seen by all the prophets. No text says that Christians have already inherited the kingdom. Since the dead are now dead and not ruling with Christ, it is logically impossible for the kingdom of God as the joint rule of Jesus with the faithful to be a fact of the present. The vast majority of kingdom verses in the New Testament refer to the kingdom which will be inaugurated at the return of Jesus and the resurrection of the dead. Revelation chapter 11 verses 15 to 18 is a golden text to preserve clarity on the Kingdom. Its arrival is at the seventh trumpet, when the nations of the present system become the Kingdom of God. Certainly the Church is to be training now in readiness for the Kingdom of God when it comes, but the Kingdom in its proper sense remains future, although its blessings can be enjoyed in part now through the Spirit of God and of Jesus which is said to be a, quote, down payment of future immortality in the kingdom. Acts chapter 1, verses 5 to 7, provides a crystal clear testimony against the idea that the kingdom of God was initiated when Jesus went to sit at the right hand of the Father in heaven. In Acts 1, verse 5, after Jesus had given a six-week seminar on his favorite subject, the kingdom, You'll find that in Acts chapter 1, verse 3. The disciples, who had already been preaching the gospel of the kingdom under Jesus' supervision, asked the obvious question. Hearing that the Spirit was to be poured out from heaven, they supposed, not unreasonably, that the kingdom of God was going to appear at that same time. They defined the kingdom as Jesus had taught them. They thought of it as involving the restored tribes of Israel in the land. I quote, Is it at this time, they asked, that you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? You'll find that in Acts chapter 1, verse 6. Jesus did not in any way rebuke them for their good question. He simply informed them that the time for the coming of the kingdom could not be known the restoration of the kingdom to Israel is taken for granted. The time which has to elapse before the kingdom comes cannot be known. Note, however, this essential point which settles any question about the kingdom in relation to the coming of the Spirit. The Spirit was to come, quote, in a few days' time, but the kingdom was to arrive at a time unknown. This proves obviously that the coming of the Spirit at Pentecost is not the same event as the coming of the kingdom. More devastating in its effect on the gospel is a theory known as dispensationalism, or in its extreme form, ultra-dispensationalism. These theories effectively divorce Jesus from the gospel which he preached. They propose that Jesus, when he preached the kingdom as gospel, was talking to Jews under the Old Covenant and was not preaching the saving gospel for us all. Thus, a leading exponent of the dispensationalist school wrote quote, The Sermon on the Mount is not church truth precisely. But the Sermon on the Mount is, in fact, the essential heart of the ethics of the New Covenant and thus directly and urgently applicable to all believers. In Christ. Unger's Bible Dictionary in its entry, Gospel, speaks ambiguously of quote, two forms of the gospel. These turn out to be two gospels. The gospel of the kingdom, it is maintained, was meant by Jesus to be for Jews only. Paul, on the other hand, introduced the gospel of grace, which is for everyone now. But when the time of the future great tribulation comes, the kingdom of God gospel will be reinstated, so this theory goes, for people undergoing that period of unprecedented trouble. The so-called ultra form of this very mistaken theory of the gospel asks us to believe that the kingdom was preached until either Acts 13, even by Paul, or according to a variation on the same theme, until Acts chapter 28. Subsequently, so says this amazing theory, Paul was given a final, quote, sacred secret revelation, which provided the gospel for those who happened to encounter Paul after this new revelation. This then would be the gospel for us today. Both forms of dispensationalism are destructive of the New Testament gospel. They strike at the heart of the New Testament, which proposes that the words of Jesus are the key to the Christian faith. Paul would have been under his own curse for destroying the gospel in Galatians chapter 1 6 to 9 if he had disobeyed the Great Commission by not preaching the same gospel of the kingdom which Jesus had authorized until he returns at the end of the age as in Matthew chapter 28 verses 19 and 20 Paul always preached the gospel of the kingdom as is seen by Acts 19 verse 8 Acts 20 verses 24 and 25 and Acts 28 verses 23 and 31 he preached the same kingdom gospel to everyone acts 20 verses 24 and 25 settles once and for all though the fact is obvious from the rest of the new testament that the gospel of grace is identical with the gospel of the kingdom finally it's absurd to imagine that paul was given late in his life a special gospel which superseded previous versions of the gospel. Presumably would have to have had to retrace his steps and teach the converts a new form of Christianity, which he knew nothing about when he'd been with them earlier. Paul did not say that there was a gospel revealed only to him. He said that the gospel was revealed to the apostles, in the plural, Ephesians 3, verse 5. Happily, there's only one gospel. Jesus was its first preacher, Hebrews chapter 2, verse 3. It is the testimony of Jesus himself. That testimony of Jesus is the mark of the true believers, according to Revelation chapter 19, verse 10. The testimony of Jesus is the gospel of the kingdom preached by Jesus and commanded by him as the saving gospel for all nations. Another massively influential teaching of dispensationalism is a theory which invents an additional resurrection event not found in Scripture. According to the widely publicized opinions of Tim LaHaye, and Jerry Jenkins, authors of the Left Behind books, Jesus will come back secretly seven years before he comes back publicly to inaugurate the kingdom on earth. The so-called, quote, secret rapture theory refers to 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 13 to 18. It maintains that the moment when the faithful dead are resurrected and living Christians are so-called raptured or caught up to meet the Lord in the air can occur at any moment. Suddenly millions will disappear, and for seven years those faithful will be in heaven with Jesus. After that, the public appearance of Jesus will occur. This pre-tribulation rapture-resurrection is a pleasant illusion promising an escape to heaven for all believers prior to the time of great tribulation. The Bible does indeed speak of a future great tribulation just before the coming of Jesus to inaugurate the kingdom. Matthew 24, verse 21, which quotes Daniel chapter 12, verse 1. But Scripture says no word at all about an arrival of Jesus to resurrect the dead before the Great Tribulation. Jesus' account of the future flatly contradicts the quote, left-behind theory. Jesus expressly said that, quote, immediately following the Great Tribulation, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the Son of Man will appear and gather his elect from the four corners of the world. You'll find that in Matthew chapter 24, verses 29 to 31. This is a, quote, post, that's to say, after tribulation gathering of the faithful. Paul affirmed Jesus' understanding by urging his converts to expect release and relief from present sufferings, and I quote, when the Lord Jesus Christ will be revealed from heaven in flaming fire, taking vengeance on his enemies 2nd Thessalonians 1 verses 7 to 8 Paul clearly did not expect release from or an end to christian suffering seven years earlier the dispensationalist attempt to insert a quote coming of jesus in secret does violence to jesus clear statement that he intends to gather the Christian elect after the great tribulation. Matthew 24, verses 29 to 31. To say that the elect in Matthew 24, verse 31 are not Christians is a symptom of the failure of the dispensationalist system. They forget that the teaching of Jesus in Matthew 24 is for Christians. Any system which divorces Jesus from his own teaching stands self-condemned. Jesus taught that the New Covenant and Christianity are based on Jesus and his teachings. There's a simplicity to the New Testament message. Christian life is one of sexual purity, lack of hate and service to God and man, a service characterized by the presentation of the gospel of immortality in the kingdom. It's a life of faith in dependence daily on God and his son. There is one God, the Father, and Jesus is the son of God, the Messiah, who is entitled to the unique status as God's own son, the son of God, because of his miraculous beginning in the womb of Mary. The kingdom of God offers immortality to those who believe it and live for it in anticipation of its arrival at the return of Jesus to reign with the saints of all the ages on a renewed earth. Revelation 5 verses 9 and 10 and Matthew 5 verse 5. Our basic premise submitted to the public for examination is that the churches have long lost much Of the simplicity of the New Testament scheme of teaching. This has been the complaint also of countless scholars, past and present, of Church history and of the Bible. We conclude with a valuable comment from a leading scholar of the Church of England. When the Greek and Roman mind came to dominate the Church, there occurred a disaster from which we have never recovered, neither in belief nor in practice. That's a quotation from H. L. Gouge, Doctor of Divinity.